Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 104 of Caro Pop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. Hey, that's two years worth of episodes. Our guest this week is Judith Owen, a gifted singer-songwriter pianist who has seized the spotlight covering the sexually potent works of female artists from decades past. On her latest album, Come On and Get It, Owen sings R&B, jazz, and blues songs written and performed by women during the repressed 1940s and 50s. Her name is Blossom. She was raised in a lion's den. We're talking about Blossom Deary's Blossom's Blues, Mary Lou Williams' Satchel Mouth Baby. Satchel Mouth Baby. We could have a lot of fun, a lot of fun, because you are... You are the cutest one. Dinah Washington's big, long, sliding thing, and Julia Lee's snatch and grab it. Then there's fine brown frame from the artist who got Owen started on this journey, Nellie Lutcher. Oh, he's got a fine brown frame. Owen has a great story about discovering Lutcher's music and seeing this diminutive, powerful performer on stage. Singing these songs herself has been a revelation for Owen as well as her audiences. She has stepped out from behind the piano to take center stage with brassy Rita Hayworth hair, an even brassier attitude, and her rich, ever-powerful voice. All the while, her band, The Gentleman Callers, delivers its slinky cabaret jazz. Owen is on tour right now, so you should see and hear for yourself. I must note here that Judith Owen is as delightful in conversation as she is in song. She knows what she thinks and what she wants. She's not afraid to expose what's real, and she's funny to boot. Owen was born in Wales and raised in London. Her father, an opera singer, her family steeped in music. Some of the records they would spin are the ones she is covering now. She's collaborated with guitarist-songwriter Richard Thompson on several projects, including a thousand years of popular music. The Old Kit Bag and Sweet Warrior. For many years, Owen and her husband, actor, satirist, and occasional collaborator Harry Shearer, have lived in New Orleans. She considers the city enriched by its musical culture like no other. When she met Shearer, he was dressed as his Spinal Tap character, Derek Smalls, and you'll have to hear that story for yourself. Jazz Odyssey does come up, as does the record label they co-own. Owen has much to say about struggles, empowerment, and the importance of confidence, especially for a woman past the age of 40. She has crafted a career of writing and performing revealing, often heartbreaking songs, starting with the 1996 album Emotions on a Postcard, and including Ebb and Flow and Somebody's Child. She also has drawn attention for her innovative covers of, among others, Mungo Jerry's In the Summertime, Deep Purple's Smoke on the Water, and Soundgarten's Black Hole Sun. Yet singing the songs of Come On and Get It has given her permission to be what she calls her unapologetic self. As she says here, I'd rather be absolutely authentically me than be a really weak copy of something. This is a lively, inspiring exchange filled with the elements that have fueled her marriage, music, and laughter. Please enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Judith Owen. Been in every honky-tonk Trying to find my 
I was very excited that Richard Thompson agreed to do my podcast before it was a podcast. So I've heard you on, you know, Gethsemane and, you know, Old Kit Bag and Sweet Warrior and Thousand Years of Popular Music. Yeah. Well, in keeping with my ethic of not keeping these conversations organized and just going with the flow <laughs> of it, since we're talking about Richard Thompson, how did you get hooked up with him and what did you learn from him doing all that work with him? The thing I love about Richard is that he's such a Brit. Um, obviously, you can tell by my accent that, that I am too. I'm actually Welsh, but I spent most of my time in London. And the thing that, that Richard and I understand is that if you're not having fun doing this incredible thing that you are so privileged to do, hard as it is, painful as it can often be, um, a grind most of the time until you get on stage. But if you're not having fun and laughing a lot, and getting out in every town that you arrive at and going to the art galleries and exhibits and seeing the world and exploring and being an adventurer, then then something's wrong. That that was vindicating to, to, to be around him and see him because that's how I felt and, and that's who he is. That's that's every every bone in his body is about being in the uh, enjoying this extraordinary gift of music, but also enjoying the the ride that you have on the way. I think I wrote this in one of my reviews of one of his shows for the Chicago Tribune years ago, but the thing that impressed me early on with it, I, I got to know him through his records and his records would just break your heart, you know? And then you go to see him live and he's just the funniest, off the cuff, yeah. jolly British deadpan, you know, presence. I mean, very funny, you know, dry sense of humor. And then he just, you know, pull out, you know, Heart Needs a Home or, you know, 1952 yeah. Vincent Black, any of these songs. And he, and he would just sort of just rip your guts out. And then he would just have a good quip. And he was clearly like happy to be there. And I thought, well, this is, that's sort of the way I view life too, in that you have to, yeah, me too. you have me to too. be able to laugh no matter what. So when you write, as I have always done uh, uh, myself, very personal and exposing music and songs that, that show you, a, that reveal a lot about yourself. And, and Richard is, is such a marvel at that, as we know. Um, it's a very much a British tendency to then sort of balance it out with with a sense of humor and relief, because that's what you need. You just can't be that intense all the time. You can't. It's impossible uh, to be that way. And it, it's, I think, having a, a really good British, I say British as a Brit, of course, but you know what I mean, a good acerbic, dry sense of humor that goes along with it is really very, very helpful. But that was it. that's what it's like on the bus with him. That's what it was like uh, in every aspect. I mean, it was laughter the whole way. And I've always, and that's to me what the key to it all, because life is, life is really hard. Even when you're doing the thing you love the most in life, it's still bloody hard and without laughter what's the point of any of it so yeah, that's why he feels like family to me this it's always been my sense in life is that you should be just like enjoying the hell out of it because really it's too hard otherwise and and it was extraordinary we met at Capitol records i was recording there myself i was in studio a he was in studio b i'd been a fan of his for the longest time because my husband was had taken me to see him and he was huge i didn't know him when i was in britain how about that and i was like late 90s and I finally got to meet him and that was it that was the start of it and I think it was Mock Tudor that he said do you want to come in and, and sing harmonies I mean I, and he said you know I, I know who you are and I, I love your voice do you want to come in and, and, it, and that was it that was the start of it all you know what, what was so amazing about Richard is that he with with thousand years of popular music because he's a musicologist and because he knew that I was unafraid. I was fearless in my ability to sing any kind of music you throw at me because I, I come from a classical background. My father was an opera singer, but I'm deeply entrenched in jazz and blues and everything in between. And pianistically, that's the thing that I can cover as well. So he realized that 
that that was something that you know three people and then Deborah Dobkin on on stage on drums and singing you know it, that was the most incredible thing that we could literally do a show that went from Gregorian chants to Britney Spears and that's what I love that's what I've always wanted to be is is the person um, that can do that 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 knows that music is should be appreciated from any era any time any style any genre it's it's one language it's different dialects but it, it's this is our vocabulary and you shouldn't put up walls just because it's it's not what you think you're like or it's that or it's this I mean I think music is just there to be savored and he really did do that and then with a little known project that he did called Cabaret of Souls which was a tremendous opportunity for me. He wrote this extraordinary, uh, very classical piece about sitting, sitting in limbo, uh, waiting to be judged as to whether you were gonna go to heaven or hell, very much like uh, The Voice or something like that, or you know, America's Got Talent, because that's why he was so sick of all that crap. So basically he did that situation and then wrote these amazing, extraordinary, he was all the male roles, I was all the female roles, and he wrote it for me knowing that I could then pull off, you know, the dreadful woman with too much surgery, or the narcissist, or the, you know, all these different women who were singing for their lives, literally. And uh, I think it's one of the best things he's ever done. I'm, I'm sad that it, that it hasn't been given love and, and taken to, to a bigger place, because it's truly extraordinary. It was an amazing, amazing show, and the orchestra was um, all made up to look like zombies, like they were already dead. And my fabulous husband with his brilliant voice was the judge. He was the person that was deciding whether you would go to heaven or hell after you sang your song of, to basically say what your life was and why you should go to heaven. But it was, it was amazingly done. It was beautifully done. It was actually, he did it because, for Danny Thompson because it started off being a vehicle for Danny to show his extraordinary bass playing inimitable skills, incomparable skills. And then it, it just suddenly blossomed into this marvelous piece um, called Cabaret of Souls. Yeah, somebody needs to take it to Broadway is the point. It should be, it's that good. It's that good. Well, I mean, you're trying on different personas now. I mean, you know, come on yeah. and get it. You're making, you know, an older music relevant to now. And there are a lot of really interesting layers to that. But as someone who's an introspective, thoughtful, talented singer-songwriter, you know, what is it like for you to sort of put that part of you aside and just be like, okay, I'm going to be these songs by these female artists who maybe weren't recognized so much in this yeah. era that's different from ours and yet has weird echoes going on right now. Oh, it surely does. Um, it's the most liberating and uh, strangely revealing thing I've ever done because like, you know, talking about the ability to wear so many hats with, uh, with Richard, my roots are so deeply entrenched in classical. My father was an opera singer at Covent Garden. So that, I, that, that was one part of my life being brought up in that world and backstage at Covent Garden for my, all my childhood. And the other's very Welsh household. And then on the other side, it was deeply entrenched with jazz and blues. And it was his collection that he'd had as a young man of these 45s of these extraordinary female, these killer female piano player singers that just changed me forever when I first heard uh, Nellie Lutcher's Fine Brown Frame. And that was the first, that was the one that set this off, that, that had me falling in love with this extraordinary woman. Um, I heard something that I'd never heard before, which was this, you know, unbelievably singular, one-of-a-kind 
women with a style all of her own, being very muscular at the piano, being a true entertainer, being like bold and brave and sexy and like in charge. And I think that it had such an effect upon me and the joy that bounces off these, this music. You know, I mean, this is, these are the 40s and 50s gems. This has been, a, you know, an education, but also an exercise in, in female self-confidence because I'm covering all women, mostly unsung from the 40s and 50s. And these are spectacular gems, these songs. They are instant, they're danceable, they're singable, they make you want to jump around the room and feel joy. And that's really at the heart of it. They are joy personified. So, and in their their mischievousness, their double entendres, you know, the next you got the Julia Lees, the, the, the queen of Kansas City, who was like dripping in innuendo and double entendres. And when I heard that, you know, I didn't even know what it meant really, but you knew something was good about it. You knew something was going on there. You know, my man stands out, king size papa, snatch and grab it. I mean, they're just divine divine so risk they're sexy i mean there's oh my god they're the best it's so typical that we think that you know women are in charge now and they're showing us what it's all about and they're owning their sexuality oh good grief these women were doing it long before that without taking it off you know sexiness is confidence that's what is sexy in life is seeing a person of great confidence and that's what they all had. I, I love the story about Julia Lee that, that her mother, who was a very kind of uptight, proper lady, said to her, never sing a song that you couldn't sing to me, that you could not sing to your mother. And from that day forth, she always sang songs that she couldn't sing to her mother. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> you know, and Nellie Latcher, age eight, playing, you know, piano in church like Nice Girls did uh, in Lake Charles, Louisiana age 12 Ma Rainey comes into town and the piano player is either ill or he's on a bender either way next thing 12 year old Nellie Lutcher is playing piano for for Ma Rainey those are the women that I respond to you know in a big way and then somebody like Blossom Deary who is a cult classic but I mean you can't make this stuff up look like a librarian voice like like a sex kitten play the piano like a beast you know with people like Bill Evans is seeing her as being a masterclass. Uh, and they're all these women in control who did it their way, but were lesser known, or, and most are forgotten. But they were the women I heard as a child. They were in my dad's collection. Peggy Lee, of course, who, you know, probably the, the one that was best known, and yet I'm not sure. The control of that woman, the in-chargeness of that woman is like nothing else. Pearl Bailey, can we all bow, bow down to Pearl Bailey, please, for blurring the lines. I mean, these are women were talk, singing about sex and blurring the lines at a time when women weren't meant to be doing anything that outspoken. You know, this Pearl Bailey, she's a singer, she's a dancer, she's, she's a political activist, she's an author, uh, she's a movie star, and she, you know, she falls in love with Louis Belson, the white drama, and she can't marry him in, in you know, pre-civil rights America, so she, she goes to London and marries him. And then she sent, you know, to see Anwar Sadat to sing for him as a, a peace envoy from America. And these stories, which I know is not obviously within the music, although they're within the show that I'm doing that, that accompanies this. But what I heard as a kid was a strength and a strength and, and a confidence that I wanted, especially because I was a piano crazy girl who wanted to be that powerful at the piano.
That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be, I wanted to play with the guys. I wanted to be the best. I wanted to be on a level playing field. I wanted to be respected. And that's all these women ever wanted. And they were real pioneers. They were trailblazers of their time. Um, and, you know, here we are in America that's telling women that they, they don't have the right to have ownership of their own sexuality, of their own being, their own bodies. Right, after and all these years. After all these years, 70 plus years ago, these gals were basically saying, I'm celebrating my sexuality. I'm celebrating and leading with being this powerful woman. And so I'm so delighted that now in making this record, in recording these songs, in bringing my um, voice to these songs, giving them new life, bringing that freshness. I'm not only shining the light on these women who should be known, who should be thanked, but also I'm getting the same uh, comments from, especially live from women, young women, after shows who come up to me and say, how can I be confident like that? How, how do you do that? And, I, and it, it just makes me want to weep because it's, it reminds me of me as a young girl hearing this music and thinking the same thing, which was how, how do I get to be that put together? And there's a very simple answer to that. And it's very hard to tell anybody that's whether you're a woman or a man. And that is to know that you're enough because confidence is at the source of all of this. And to know that you're enough is really the hardest thing that any of us ever have to get our heads around if we haven't been told that by our parents. Right. Confidence, you know, knowing that, that you are full up, that you're rich, is hard to get when you haven't been given that or told that. Then I get an army of, of grown-up women who I am demonstrating to, I hope, and showing that when you pass 40, you don't become a dry husk. You don't become irrelevant and invisible and you're not sexless. In fact, you're probably your best self. So it's that thing about, I think, you know, just like watch what just, what happened at this year's Oscars. See what, see who it is that's being, is defining what it is to be a great woman right now. Um, and it's, to me, that this is what you know, it's it's like the Me Too movement. It came. It feels almost like it came and went. What, what happened? You know, it's 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 done. And that's because if you label things, they can just come and go very very quickly. What I feel about these women and about the relevance of their music, seventy years plus, on today, is that this is the point of trying to have healthy young women. About having to have healthy women of any age is to instill them with that confidence and sense of being enough and you know whether I get to get up stand up on stage and be this you know I get to finally come out from behind the piano and I think that was the, your point and to, to from being the you know singer songwriter exposing although again like Richard I've always want, liked to be funny in between songs because it's just too hard otherwise but I get to be that front that leader, the woman in charge, in control. I get to be funny. I get to be the actress and the dancer and the singer and the entertainer that I always wanted to be. And then I get to walk to the piano and do what I do. Um, but it, I now, through this music, through these women, it's, it's, it's extraordinary because I didn't see this coming, Mark. I didn't see this coming. Covering these songs, has actually 
and I use this word very, very purposefully, has given me permission to be my unapologetic self. And I use the word unapologetic because women certainly do, and I'm sure a lot of men do as well. You go through life kind of apologizing for what you do, who you are, your choices, the way you look, the way you act, being too loud, being too quiet, whatever it is. We apologize so much. Brits, that's all we do. And then you realize what a waste. What an awful waste of time. I have nothing to apologize for. And if, if you don't get it, or if you don't, you know, the point is, yeah, when you're a grown-up, you realize that you don't have to be liked by everybody. You don't have to please everyone. It's just, that doesn't matter. What matters is who, who you do like and who likes you. And who nobody's you keeping track of this stuff except for you. No, but you're the, that, thank you. Precious, perfect words. The only judge is you. No one else matters. Who cares? But that's the point. It takes so long to get to a, a, a place where you know that it doesn't matter and that you are your worst judge uh, and you're the, you're the only judge. And it takes a lot of your life, unless you're one of those fortunate people who have been instilled with this since you were a kid. Well, there's very few people out there like that. I've met a handful of them, if that, three maybe. And I'm, I'm, my mind explodes when I talk to them because I, I can't even imagine being brought up where, where you're instilled with that. Um, but wouldn't it be nice it wouldn't it be nice if we had a little bit more of that earlier on. It's an extraordinary gift and it's one that I believe is in this music, is in these women, is in their stories. Um, and that's why it's important for me to share the music, to share their, their life stories, to talk about the effect they've had on women like me, how they open the doors for women like me. Um, and inspired people like me to be braver and bolder and to maybe not care so much but to be you know your authentic artistic self doesn't matter you know people are always going to criticize you hate you for what you do bring you down smack you down but ultimately the most precious thing as a musician as an artist is to have your own voice and to absolutely accept that it, you don't need to be loved by everyone. What matters is who, who loves you. And that's, that's really it. So have you still been writing songs during this process? And has this experience changed the way you approach what you're creating and what's coming next? In COVID, I was furiously writing. I think a lot of um, people were, a lot of, of uh, writers were. You're either doing nothing and were just like atrophying, but, or they were just pumping out stuff. I was streaming like a fool. I was writing stuff that was very time sensitive. I brought out this, this uh, EP called The Here and Now, and it was about everything I was seeing, you know, to do with, you know, the balcony singers of Italy in the beginning of COVID, to do with uh, the Black Lives Matter, to do with everything. And I did it with uh, Leland Sklar and the two of us just went into the studio and we're in different rooms wearing masks and off we went and, and did that together. Um, and then I suddenly got to a point, Mark, where I thought, I do not want to sing another serious, deep and meaningful song. I mean, I never stopped writing, but I didn't 
you know, I, I, I would rather have stuck forks in my eyes than do something because I was in such, I went into a dark place. We all went into a dark place. What I wanted desperately was joy and hope. That's what I wanted. Now that's what I wanted as a child. And that's why I returned to these women because I knew that this was the opportunity this was the time because I'd always wanted to do this, but it's like life gets in your way and there's all this writing and I'm always producing music and doing that and that's what I'm doing. But this gave me the time and the inclination to actually do something that was so different, but yes and no, you know, it was always in me. As I always say, like the, she, the badass was, I was gestating inside me and just waiting to come out. Um, so I just thought, why not? Why not? I don't even know if I'm ever going to get out because none of us did and, and play again. I don't know when this will end. I don't know what's going to happen. I live in New Orleans. I've got access to the greatest music musicians, I believe, jazz musicians in the world who are so schooled in this sound, the grease of New Orleans, the sexuality of their playing, the pure joy that you can hear in in the musicians in New Orleans is, is like nothing else in the world. That's, that's where they come from, is this authentic place. And, uh, you know, and it, it, it comes from the brothel and it sounds like it, by the way, still, when you hear the, the jazz from there, it just does, it's fantastic. So that's why I made this album. And even though I continued writing and I haven't felt, in all honesty, for the last year, like I wanted to do any of my back catalogue or to do any of the songs that I have been writing in addition to this, which by the way, you're absolutely correct, have changed, have changed in demeanour because they, I'm a more muscular entertainer now and I'm a more fearless I'm pretty fearless when I'm behind the piano, but there's nothing like getting out from behind it to be utterly fearless. I mean, that's the truth. That was a big step that you can't imagine. It was sort of like suddenly not to have my uh, my security blanket and the piano in front of me. Uh, so that was like, that was both liberating and, and extraordinarily frightening. And for two seconds then I was off. I mean, I'm just a, you know, I'm an actress. I like being in, in front of the camera and I like acting and I like dancing and I love performing and I love making people laugh and making people joyful. I really, really do. That's truly, that's what's in me to do. And I also like making them cry and making them feel huge emotions, laughter, tears. Those are the the big ones, that's what I felt as a kid. Classical music, jazz, those are the things that really forge me all the time. What we started talking about at the beginning, the joy and, and the depth, the bittersweet is everything that this life is. It's wonderful and it's terrible in a split second. And that's how I see it all. So uh, the greatest change in, in my performance is that during the show, during the live show, I start standing up, of course. I, I start as, as, my, as my band call me, Lady J. <laughs> and I'm in that place, that role. I look it, I look the part, I'm in that era, I'm in but the contemporary version of it, but I'm still looking like some cross-dressing, you know, Rita Hayworth meets Dietrich. That's the look and I love it. And that's the, that's the point of really committing because you've got to honor this music. You have to commit to it. You've got to sing these lyrics with a straight face. 
to pull them off. You know, they are, they are rude, they are fabulous, but you've got to do this with a real sense of wry humor. But what I realize is that when I get to, then I get to the piano and then all bets are off. The audience are in shock because they think I'm this. And then I go to the piano, you know, for those who don't know me. And then I kind of have become an even more explosive piano player, a more muscular piano player, a more muscular artist at the piano. That's the difference because again, it's allowed me to be really unapologetic about my performing too. I'm, I'm not judging myself and we all judge ourselves when we perform. You know, we're, we're all, like, we've got the inner dialogue. Every artist does, every human being does. Every human being does. So, you know, it's like you still can't help. You're still looking out and thinking, well, hang on, the whole audience are going nuts, but there's that one person that looks really bored and they absolutely, are, you're now torn apart inside. You're dying, you're dying. So now I'm just, I don't care. This is who I am. This is who I always was and wanted to be, but was always slightly apologetic about it. Because you, after years, you know, you get told you're too this, you're too that, you're too loud, you're too broad. You're, why do you think you're funny? Your lyrics, why are you so emotional? I mean, honest to God, it just goes on forever and a day. And then isn't that the irony that the person I now am on stage, which is truly me, is the one that is getting, I think, more appreciation, vindication and love than I've ever had in my entire career. How about that? And that feeling of empowerment and joy in performing, yeah. I, I assume you're sort of taking that to move forward and like, like whatever the next thing is, you're going to take that with you. And that's going to inform whatever the next project is, whether you get the same musicians together and say, all right, we're going to dig deeper into these catalogs or I got some songs that I wrote or whatever yeah. it is, it's all going to be part of whatever this next stage is. I'm already in Esplanade Studios in New Orleans with my gentleman callers. What a name, my band. We're already starting the next. And believe me, I'm at the piano and there's a few, there's a few of my things and we move it around. David Tokanowski, phenomenal pianist. He's at the piano, some of it, I'm, you know, and then I take to the piano, he's on Hammond. I mean, really, it's like, it's a beautiful thing. It's a glorious thing. And I think it has really colored how I move forward. It has influenced so much my sense of what I'm capable of. Cause that's, again, you know, when I talk about it all being an exercise in self-confidence, that's what, that's what I mean. One of the hardest things for all of us in life, I think is, is the word no. I think it's so hard for any of us to say no. Um, when in our hearts, we really, really want to, but don't know how to, again, trying to be nice, trying to be a pleaser. But it seems to me that moving forward, I know uh, that this this music has really, really, really hit a golden place and has really uh, affected people so beautifully and people are responding to this music so incredibly. I, I'm just over the moon. The streams are so extraordinary and, and the reaction to the live shows, oh, what well, I could only ever have dreamt of. And so moving forward, I feel much more able to say, no, no, I'm not doing that. No, no, not, no. No, this is the path. It's going to be a development of this. I'm not gonna like suddenly turn around and do something that is like, you know, 
180 degrees away from this one. No, no, because that's not what the my audience want. My audience want this right now, but it has to move forward. It has to develop. I have to take them further down the road. And because it's, it's a discovery of the music, it's a rediscovery. You know, I'm so into that. Rediscovering songs, rearranging songs. I love it so much, but it's a rediscovery of these women who so deserve to be adored and loved, as I said before. But it's also, it's really letting people enjoy music that they don't think somehow they should. I'm not joking. I have more people saying at the end of shows, I didn't think I even liked jazz, than you can shake a stick at. I mean, you can't believe this. And I know what they mean. Mark, I know what they mean. What they mean is, A, I've never been exposed to jazz, and the jazz I've heard maybe has been much more, you know, sort of introspective, deep, you know, instrumental, less accessible. And God knows, you know, I love jazz, you love jazz, you know. I mean, we all love jazz, but Boy, I say we all love jazz. We don't. I mean, some of it you can't access, you know. It's this label that covers, so, like, you know, any of these labels, right? Rock yeah. covers everything from, you know, Pink Floyd to Richard Thompson to you exactly. know, acoustic people, jazz. You know, you got your fusion and then you have Blossom Deary. And, and you know, so people Thank you. So people sort of think that there's this one label that applies to us. Oh, I don't like jazz. I'm like, well, what are you talking about? It's like, it's music and there's so much. Thank it's interesting. you. But the idea that people now, everything that's out there, that's what they're gravitating toward. And that's what they're connecting to. And they're like, oh, on a Sunday morning, I have to put on this Blossom Deary record. No, it's correct. And, and you know, thankfully, the lovely people at the, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, you know, had played her in, in many of their episodes. Her publishing people got in touch with me to thank me so much for doing the, my version of uh, Blossoms Blues of doing it in a way that was so was so right. It's my own way, but it's so right, and it absolutely is like a, a nod, a tip of that, you know, to her. And they were, you know, they they were thrilled because that's what opens the door to pe to people rediscovering. To me, if you just do the song exactly as it was originally done, then you're doing karaoke. What's the point? Yeah, you did Smoke on the Water in that one and Black Hole Sun. And yes. so, yeah, and all of them are, are you sort of putting them through your own sensibility. Yeah. And it's not gimmicky either. It's like, no, no. Like, these are all no, really no, no, no. valid new interpretations. You did a version, you know, a few albums back about of In the Summertime. Yeah. You know, Mungle Jerry, which... Uh, if you grew up knowing that song, I mean, it's such a hinky dinky. So to hear it sort of stripped down to like, well, here's the actual song that's there, yeah. you know, as opposed to all the, the pogo sticking around, you know, it's, right. it's great to hear and it I, in a different way. Well, I, yeah. And I think because I love arranging, you can tell, obviously, but I've got this mind, which, like you said about people who feel I don't like jazz because it's got that one level. You know, I grew up around that. I don't like opera. I don't like classical music. Oh no, it's not for me. It's like, what? You hear classical music in every football game, in it behind every film. You are hearing classical music your whole life. Same thing with jazz and blues. You know, it's not all one label. I really feel that I don't have any preconceptions or walls or boundaries to stop me from going and rearranging a rock song, a jazz song. If I love it, what I'm hearing as a writer is the song. I'm hearing the song. 
I'm hearing how great this song is. So in the summertime, you know, we've all grown up with that bloody thing. It comes out, it's wheeled out every summer in Britain and then put away again until the following year. But I could hear it as being, I was living, you know, I was in California and I could hear it absolutely as this kind of Californian hot, sultry vibe, you know, with me staring at good looking surfers. I mean, it's just, a, it's just about having an overactive imagination and being able to put your interpretation, your life into these songs. I mean, if you don't have a personal investment in them, then they're, they're meaningless. So you have to find that. And that, that's why I think, whether it be that song, which again, Ray Dorsey reached out to me to say it's the greatest version he's ever heard, thank you so much. Or whether it's Eye of the Tiger, which Jim got through to me and said, you know, thank you, I am a huge fan. And we, you know, he's such a funny guy and so wonderful, but you know, he's now become a, a dear friend. And it's, you know, those are the things that, that really, you know, touched me. I found out that various members of Deep Purple were huge fans because of, uh, of Smoke on the Water and that the beloved and so lost and so dearly departed Chris Cornell was a huge fan of Black Hole Sun. So, and the reason why, and that's not because I'm being a braggart, it's because that's, that's why I do it. The point of this is to do, to honor these songs by not being lazy covers, but by bringing something fresh and original and bringing myself to them because I'm a writer, because that's, that's what I do. I can't sing a song that I don't feel and that I don't mean. That's why I put on, the man suit and the hair and have the look to sing these songs because I have to commit to that music, that sensibility, that joy, that fun. I have to entertain the audience. That's my job. I am a believer in that and I don't see boundaries or walls. That's why I love Richard Thompson. That's exactly the reason why I get this so much with the, why we get on so well. I think I think music, all music, is to be absolutely uh, enjoyed and loved and wallowed in and experienced and, and that you should not be ever be shut down to, to the possibility that actually there are many, as you say, many forms, many types of music within each category. You know, don't be afraid. Put your foot in. You might suddenly realize that you already know this music. You're already aware of it, you know? So uh, I have become friends with Nellie Lutcher's granddaughter. Astonishing story, the fact that my father introduced me to Nellie and she was the first. She started the love affair with these women. And uh, when I first came to LA in the mid nineties, I was like lonely and bored and I was with my now husband, but I was just still like, lonely and bored and I look in the LA Times in the calendar section to see what's going on you know LA's as I'm sure you know is the most difficult place to try and get to do anything you'd have to literally plan it like an army you know thing like weeks in advance where's the traffic going what time how do I get where anyway so there's this tiny advert that says um one night only Nellie Lutcher returns to the stage after 30 years of retirement um, and I think it was in uh, the Cinegrill, the Roosevelt Hotel. And, um, and I thought, no, surely not. She, how old is it? You know, it can't be, it's got to be like a, like somebody 
be doing Nellie Lutcher? That's what I thought. So I called them up and said, could you just tell me how old the lady Nellie Lutcher is? And, she, and they said, oh, she must be 80. She's a grandmother and uh, she's incredible. She was a huge star, you know, in the 40s and 50s. And I was like, that's it. Buy my tickets. Down we go. And it's a very, yeah, it's a light room. It's heartbreaking. That's, and out she comes. It is tiny little Nellie Lutcher, white gloves. She gets up on stage, hits the piano in that percussive, stunning manner. First song. Fine brown frame. I lose it, of course. I just burst into tears. Sounds like she's 20. Plays like she's 20. She's got joy and charisma and delicious innuendo bouncing off her. Owns the room and is one of the most extraordinary things that it would go from my father hearing her when he was a kid, you know, and being a fan, to me now seeing her as an adult in this new place. And then in that room that night, unbeknownst to me, was her granddaughter, eight years old, who'd been smuggled in, Kira. So I wasn't the woman I am today, so I went up to her and said, you, you mean so much to me. This is the, it's one of the greatest moments of my life. I'm, thank you so much. I mean, if I was the woman I am today, I would have literally kidnapped her and brought her home and just like cross-examined her for every story I could, you know, so, but, uh, all these years later, making uh, this this album, I reached out to Kira, who I, I found was uh, someone on my team, found out that she was online and she mentioned her, her grandmother and was living in San Francisco. So I, I brought her to New Orleans for the first show that I did at Preservation Hall and got the opportunity to sit down with her and hear every single delicious and and hard and cruel and, and magnificent story of her grandmother's life um, and that's again you know I'm, I'm an adventurous but I'm a curious human being and I love what's been and I respect and adore my fellow musicians and I like the, the, all the movies I watch every single day at least two of black and white movies you know I'm that person who really appreciates what's gone what's is and what's wants to share those stories and I, and I, I think it's been a, a revelation for me and, and happily it's really, really touched a nerve with, with the audience, with, with the public. And, and who would have thought, who would have thought? <laughs> My 13th album. <laughs> I know, who, how incredible for that girl though. Imagine, so this girl's eight years old. She yeah. seen her grandmother perform her first show in 30 years, which in itself is kind of astounding. Like the somehow after 30 years, she decided to do this one little club show and you're yeah. there and the granddaughter's there. And then a couple decades later, she's seen you perform her grandmother's yeah. music at Preservation Hall. I mean, yeah. you're just such a through line covering so much ground there. It's a, every part of my life has been through lines. It's been extraordinary, Mark. And honestly, get this for for amazing the both of us i was describing to her how i would dance around the living room you know the music room where the piano was listening to this uh fine brown frame singing it. i would sing it endlessly i'd never shut up i was singing fine brown frame for, you know until people would just wanted to put tape over my mouth and i didn't know what it meant how could I? I was like six years old. I didn't know the, the sexual connotations of it, but I didn't care. I was like strutting my stuff, dancing around the room, doing it. And Kira was doing exactly the same thing. 
and she was singing along to Fine Brown Frame when her grandmother was was playing it, and they'd be laughing and uh, and they'd be like hooting because it's so funny to see a kid with absolutely no awareness uh, until much later of what this really meant, and we were howling about this and it was that moment of just connection and celebration of this amazing woman Nelly and hearing her story you know the other bizarre thing is I was signed to Capitol Records and um, and it was uh, the best and worst of times that's where I met Richard of course so in many ways it was the best of times of all the people in Kebmo and I got to make the record in in Frank Sinatra's you know Studio A I'm such a huge Frank fan of course and to me the Capitol Records studios are the temple of, of music anyway in America um, and I recorded it all on on Nat King Cole's piano you know replete with the with the cigarette burns on the end of the keyboard so it took, this is what matters to me you see I, I am a die-hard fan I'm a lover of music and musicians and so but it was the worst of times because as my album was about to come out um, the president of Capitol was axed and we know the rest of the story and it, what was meant to be a giant hit flagship album like big seller was now like bye bye so a uh, capital is a bittersweet now all the women bar one i don't believe i'm not sure that blossom was ever on capital it was all she was verve uh, those were her you know the cult classics were the verve records every woman i cover was on capital every woman and they, in Nellie's case, she was quite royally ripped off. Quite badly ripped off. And that's why she went into early retirement, because she refused to record for anybody else because she was so, so angry, so hurt by what had happened. Um, and the uh, remarkable woman that she was, she then, she became very vocal um, as a, uh, uh, a person in in the musicians union for african-americans and fought for rights of african-american musicians then she started owning property that she then housed fellow musicians who were struggling into i mean this was an extraordinary woman how did she get to london how would i know of her because how did that happen well she was a star in london I mean, she was a star here for, for you know, doing duets with Nat King Cole. Again, there, there's the, the little through line right there. He was so incredible to many of these women. He was so such a part of this. In London, she was a huge star. In London, she had to be escorted by police to her hotel after doing her shows in the Prince of Wales Theatre, which is a huge theatre in the West End. That's how much of a star she was. And as so many, you know, black performers were coming to Europe, coming to Britain to perform because they were on a level playing field. Right. That and, was and appreciated more over there than they were oh, in the US. Like you'd have to they were. you'd have to like get the you know their Beatles and the Stones to cover their stuff to be, be oh Arthur Alexander he's good. No, it, it's it's we we all know the horror of this story, and to this day jazz is not as appreciated in America as it is in Europe and Asia and Britain. It doesn't come close to how much the Europeans adore it. Not even near. America does not appreciate its greatest, its greatest to me musical creation, which is jazz. Truly, jazz and blues. It's, it's like this is an American jewel. So uh, it's a treasure. It's a treasure, least appreciated because of the history. Come on, let's be honest. Maybe it's because I'm a Brit, probably because I'm a Brit. 
that I can see this with, with the eyes that I have and understand it. Because when I was a kid, I heard these women, and I thought they were all stars. <laughs> I thought they were stars because they made records. And they were, don't get me wrong. But I didn't, of course, understand really what, what was underneath so much of it. You know, the, the bigger piece of it was, of course, with Blossom Deary as well, that they were singular women. They were so unique. There was being a woman, then there was being, a, you know, an African-American woman, and then there's being a woman who wants to call the, her shots and call the shots and be her own person. It's so many layers, but they were all so brave, so powerful. The amazing commonality and the line that goes through all these women is their take charge qualities. And like Nelly saying, I'm not recording again. Not if that's gonna happen, I'll play live. I'm not recording, done. You will not do that to me again. Or Blossom, who I got to see Blossom, you know, at the very, very end of her career. I saw it twice, one with Dave Frischberg, which was truly a joy because of, you know, of course he wrote those phenomenal songs for her. You get to see a person like that. That's what I describe as being a lifer. That's what they all were, you know. They're not in it for the, for the tiny spark, the sort of moment of fame that goes oh so quickly, unless you're very lucky. They were lifers, this was, this was it. This is, this is what they did on their own terms with their own really unique stylings. You would use that term to describe yourself as well? Yeah, yeah I would. I've had a, I've had a, a battle my whole life, like I said, with, yeah. uh, with the business, with the industry. I'm so happy with, uh, with being able to be the captain or the... You've been running your own record label for yeah, you. Yeah, I have my own label. I, I distribute it throughout the world and he does the same thing. And we've, you know, long before uh, people realized, oh my God, you know, the record labels are now dealing with multi, multi, multi millions out the gate. But this is no longer a place of development. This is no longer a place of being really, really unique. If you don't fit it into a category, that's the problem. This is all the problem I have with the whole thing, really, the whole business, is that people have always wanted to, to put artists in categories, into pigeonholes, into nice little clean boxes where they can describe them. They said the same thing about Ava Cassidy, the most astonishing artist who covered and did everything in her inimitable style and nobody knew what to do with her because they couldn't put her in a box. She was her own box. That's my point, you see. And only when she died did they figure out, and it was always about didn't know what to do. If I've heard that line more times in my life than I've had hot dinners, seriously, we, you're uh, incredible, it's amazing, you're just so stunning, but I just don't know what to do with you. I mean, and you ask any artist, you ask any artist that isn't straight down the middle, you know, that isn't obvious, that isn't straight down the middle, the comments they've received in their lives, and that will come up very high to the top. Now, I've never let that put me off because, um, you know, I've tried a couple of times to be something else. It doesn't work. It's usually taken one day of me trying that I'm like, oh, I can't stand this. It's just, this is not me. It's not me. You are who you are. And I'd rather be a first class me. I'd rather be absolutely authentically me than be a really weak copy 
of something. It's not what I want. That's not what I ever wanted to be. So, I mean, I'm just saying it's not an excuse, but I chose a road um, that was going to be me being me. It's much harder. It takes much longer. You don't get those massive, like, huge explosions of fame. But, you know, I'm, I'm Sisyphus. I'm Lady Sisyphus rolling that giant rock up the hill every single day. That is what I do. And I actually think that in many ways, that's what keeps all of us healthy and keeps us pushing for what we see ahead, keeps us really moving forward as opposed to being stuck or feeling like we've done it all or there's nowhere else to go or the best is behind us. No, 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 no. It's the journey. It's the desire that, and the drive that makes you want to, to move forward in life. That's for all of us, whether you're, whether you're a musician or not. Yeah, I mean William Goldman, the the screenwriter, wrote this you know book, Adventures in the Screen Trade, years ago, and he had this famous mm. saying about Hollywood, which is nobody knows anything, and it's it's a really simple phrase, but it applies to so much actually. And there's so many musicians I've talked to where it's like, did you think this was going to be your hit song? No, no, we thought this was going to be the hit song, or this is your hit album, and the and the and the record company came and said we don't hear a single on it, and it's the and it's the album that has like the big hit singles on it. Thank and, you. And nobody knows anything. On one hand, is kind of this dismissive remark, but on the other hand, it's kind of liberating in a way because you're know, like you know what, even these people who are paid to say this is a hit and this is, they don't really know because the magic of art, music film any of it is that it sort of takes on a life of its own yes, and it you just can't predict it so if you don't follow your your heart and what you're creating you're not going to get those happy accidents of what actually I clicks so agree if you spend your life jumping through hoops to please someone you're never gonna you're not gonna please anyone and least of all yourself and at the end of the day you're looking in the mirror at yourself and that's that's where i come from uh, and Nobody knows anything. And that is the best line ever. And the labels don't know it. And PR people don't know it. And marketers don't know it. And agents don't know it. Nobody knows it. I'll tell you who knows it. The public. The public. And you cannot ever plan for what's going to hit. Never. Never, never, never. I wouldn't have thought that this would be like the one that made people go, this is what I've been waiting for. I mean, you know, this is just like, what? So that's... Fabulous. That's just so unexpected. I mean, so unexpected and so wonderful in daring to just do something that was what I'd always wanted to do, to show myself completely, to dare to be that big and brave and ballsy. I actually hit the nerve. Isn't that amazing? I mean, really, really, that is what I would tell anybody just starting out is that no one knows anything. Try not to listen to anybody and take too much notice of anybody. You know, it's like that thing about listening to your, taking notice of what your instincts are telling you, what you feel in your gut. Why do you think someone else's gut is more important than yours? And that's really it. When I look back at things that people have said to me, it kind of makes me chuckle um, because it was sort of like, I always had a very strong backbone in me that even when I was sort of went, oh, maybe there's something was like, mm, no. And it's, it's a perfect example of the, with my experience at Capital was, you know, the record that was meant to sell multi-millions and should have didn't because life took a different direction and it all just went to hell in a handbasket. So you just 
You just don't know. None of us do. So to hold your nose, do what you want, jump in, be your most authentic self. That's the voice you were given. That's what you have. Be your best self, whether you're in music or, I'm talking about everybody now in life. It's a very short life. Be yourself. Thank, that's it. Can I? Thank you. That's it. <laughs> that's it. No, that's great. And I, you can say, I, yeah, I, I'll send my invoice to you all, all you listeners, for that. But it's I, honestly, I, I, I feel like I'm proselytizing in a way that's so annoying. But no, 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 it's fantastic. It, it's it took, like I said, all of this took me by surprise. I didn't expect to to learn and grow so much by doing this project. But seemingly, um, you know, it, it helps. By the way, I'm a very sort of you know, an actress at heart, as I guess. I'm an entertainer, so, you know, I, I love dressing up and doing all those things. That, and it suits me to live in New Orleans and in London, of course, but New Orleans has that particular joy and love of dress up and celebration and everything's an excuse for a party and wear a wig and a costume and uh, it just have that joy. And, and I always say to people, remember when you were a kid, and you dressed up as anything you wanted and it was great and you could just be anything you wanted and, and, and it was all that fantasy, it was all in your mind but it was so liberating, so liberating, it was probably the, mo the most honest you ever and you'd be like, you'd have a, you know, you'd have like the, the tablecloth as a cape and you'd sort of like, you know, you'd be with a broom in one hand, it's a horse, all that stuff. That's actually probably the purest, best you ever. I, I have a very strong sense that we come in amazingly well-formed. I, th I believe that human beings come in as themselves and then nature nurture and then the hardships and the difficulties and the stresses and the highs and lows of life. You're derailed as an adult and then you're meant to be something else and you're meant to be grown up and, you know, take on this other identity, even though you're just a child inside. We all are. And then I believe the job is to spend the rest of your life trying to get back in some way to being that person you came in as with all the knowledge that you have and the experience that you now have. Because that really is, I believe, the finest you. And I encourage people, if they're not going to New Orleans anytime soon, and if they're not going to you know, be in that situation, I encourage people to put headphones on and listen to music and sing along as I've always done in my entire life or, you know, dance down the street listening to, to Aretha Franklin and, and it's them. And do that thing you did as a kid where you actually think it's you on stage. It's phenomenal. It's so liberating. Have a costume party. Do it for no reason. For no, have a, just do it for the, for the pure joy of being a kid again because... I think there's one thing that is maybe the greatest thing to being a musician. There's a great joke about a child saying to, to a parent, when I grow up, I want to be a musician. And the parent saying, well, you can't be both. And I think that is part of the, of the true joy of being a musician is that you can, you're playing. It's hard, it's tough, it's a grind, but you are playing. That's and you the are verb. Doing, that's the verb. And you're the closest thing to being a child. Again, always. It's your playground. And we're all such kids. 
And we're allowed, we're given permission to be kids. And I don't think that really exists in many places in life when you're, where you're given permission to be a kid and just let go and have fun. And I think it's an important part of all our lives that we've kind of maybe lost touch with unless you live in New Orleans and you get to, you know, dress up. But like I said, it's easy, it's easy when, when you're an entertainer and that's what you get to do. Less so when, you know, you work in a bank or, you know, you, you have that job of, of which means responsibility and being very serious and being, you know, being a grown up. Um, but I encourage people to, to find those, those ways of, of, of finding your, your young self. Yeah. How long have you lived in New Orleans? Oh, a long time. Since we've been uh, visiting since the late 90s and we bought our home uh, in, right after Katrina because we had a little condo there and uh, and then we just realized after Katrina that we just wanted to um, be there and support the city, help it get back. Because it was, it, was, it was absolutely, uh, th there are no words actually to describe the devastation of it, but the pure human negligence of it all was really, uh, it was really, extraordinary but New Orleans again it, it to me it represents um, how America feels about jazz how um, to me New Orleans is the, you know the birthplace of jazz as this extraordinary city of such culture and importance historical importance to America good and bad by the way um, is sort of uh, neglected. It's sort of like, you know, the poor cousin or something, the bad child. And, uh, and it's, it's for the rest of us and the rest of the world, of course, we look upon it as being the absolute jewel, the jewel. Was jazz the magnet that brought you there to live? I've never, I've never seen a place where, you know, I've grown up in London. I've been around music my whole life, but my, you know, in the most part, classical, although I was like, cut my teeth in Ronnie Scott's and, in, you know, seen great music. But when I went to New Orleans, having, you know, also heard the music that my dad collected, Jelly Roll Morton, you know, the Louis Armstrongs and Mahalia Jackson's, or, you know, he had a good collection of, you know, I knew, you know, Professor Longhair, I, I knew the, the music of New Orleans as well. It was already in my DNA. So when I went there, I remember the first words out of my mouth once we, when we came into, we got, drove into the French Quarter was, why the feck don't we live here? because we've been living in LA and, and it was the antithesis of, LA is the antithesis of New Orleans. New Orleans is all about human warmth and a sense of community and it's driven by music and food. Hello. So um, it was just like, sign me up. So, you know, you're driving into this place which literally looks like Montmartre, you know, it looks, it's, it's unchanged into the French Quarter and then we go out, we see two shows. That's the thing about being in a tiny place like that, in a tiny city, that is, has a thriving music scene. Not just jazz, it has all kinds of music. An incredible orchestra as well, by the way, at the Orpheum in the Louisiana Philharmonic. It's an extraordinary place. And so, you know, you'd, you'd go and see like two shows, because you could, after dinner, after a very leisurely, long, unbelievably indulgent dinner, you'd go out to a couple of clubs and see the most ridiculous music I've ever seen in my life. And I was in shock, you know, the scene. 
And that's why it attracts people like me. That's why it attracts the John Clearys and my percussionist who uh, has worked with me in London and when, you know, worked on the stuff with me and Leland Sklar, Pedro Segundo. I mean, he actually ended up moving there because the scene is so pure, you can actually be a musician there and make a great living. I mean, that's, there's not many places outside of Nashville where you can say that, but it has the scene that, that used to be, you know, used to be in LA, used to be in New York, used to be everywhere, but it doesn't exist anymore. It does there. And the feeling that people are making music, are writing music, are performing music, because they must, because they have to, not because they think there's a record deal at the end of it, or because they think they're going to be stars, that's far from it. That's not how it is. It's because that's what they do. That's what their parents did. That's what their fathers did. That's what their mothers did. That's what they've always done. That's the, the instrument they were handed as a kid. That's what they do. And um, it's one of the most inspiring places I've ever been because when I go out and see, which unfortunately in COVID, um, you couldn't go into clubs, but New Orleans being New Orleans, we all ended up performing in the streets, performing on, on porches, you know, closing off streets. There was a piano that was nailed down onto a flatbed truck, which was my favorite thing in the world, so that you actually could drive around uh, New Orleans and, and could do incredible piano shows wherever it went. It's just marvelous. As it went solidly, went out of tune, you know, day by day, but then, then we did tune it up. That's what I mean, people have to play. They have to play and they have to eat. That is a great, sense of community there that I've never felt anywhere else in my life. It has all its problems. It has all of America does right now. It has the darkness, has its problems, has the poverty. Uh, but I've not found anywhere else in my life that is so um, driven and is so enriched by the musical culture. Never. I just talked with another New Orleans musician, Neil Nocentelli of The Meters. Oh, yes! Guitarist. Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. Phenomenal guitarist. Phenomenal. The street performers in New Orleans, that's the other thing that I noticed the minute I went down there. People playing in the street were better than most people I'd seen in other parts of the world in clubs, you know, in venues. It was ridiculous. And it inspires you, even though at that time I wasn't doing this music. I've always been, you know, hugely a jazzer at heart, jazz influence. I'm, you know, part classical, part jazz. It's all that singer-songwriter stuff. But you can hear that in my singing, you can hear my playing. But just seeing this music inspires you to, to be more liberated and to take more risks and to just, again, to, to do what you do. That's the point of all of this. So the city kind of encourages that creativity. And, and that might be in costume, that might be in parading, that might be Mardi Gras, that's in music, that's in all, you know, in, in that experimentation, in that flop over from one style of music to another. It really is, um, it's very accepting of all things, as it always has been. It's been very accepting of like, the uh, outcasts <laughs> of, of uh, the South, you know? It, it's very much people who don't fit in. That's why all the, the writers went there. That's why the painters went there. The music, you know, it attracts um, people who, creative people who don't fit into, I guess, what's described as regular life. 
Antihero is Illinois' number one IPA once again, and to celebrate, Revolution Brewing is unveiling a new sports franchise, the Antiheroes. It features four limited edition collectible cans. The familiar green Antihero can is shifting to a rotating array of new looks, depicting the hero's total dominance across four sports, football, hockey, basketball, and baseball. Collect all four now and through May of next year. To learn more, check out at Rev Brew Chicago on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. I'll tell you what we're going to have to do. Well, Jazz Odyssey. We're not going about to do a free-form jazz uh, exploration in front of uh, a festival crowd. You are witnesses at the new birth of Spinal Tap Mark II. Hope you enjoy our new direction. On the bass, Derek Smalls. He wrote this. Do you and your husband play a lot of music together at home, sing together? Yeah. I mean, I met Harry in London when he was, you know, when he was doing a Spinal Tap show at the Royal Albert Hall. And I was playing in this crappy little bar as a sort of very young, very poor, struggling musician. And uh, he heard me singing from, he was checking in. It was like like this little jazz bar that was part, part of this hotel, the rock and roll hotel. And uh, he was checking in and he heard me sing. And, uh, and I think it was just like fell for my voice. That's the truth. And when I turned around to this rapturous applause after I finished playing one, a song, um, I turned around and there, was, uh, and there was Christopher Guest and a little person, a Stonehenge elf, and what looked and what looked like Derek Small standing, which was in fact Harry, who had all the hair on, uh, standing behind me. And I just thought that, as a, somebody that needs to laugh a lot, I just thought that's the funniest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. This is the most surreal moment of my life. I must not miss this opportunity to just you know enjoy this moment. And and literally the rest is history. And and because the two of us are wrapped up in music and comedy, music and laughter. It's a perfect thing. So Harry has always at home played bass with me as I'm writing music, as I'm trying music, as I'm rehearsing, as I'm practicing. And fortunately for me, I've, uh, I've been f lucky enough to be Arnica, the backup singer, for Spinal Tap at uh, Live Earth Day and, you know, at Wembley to 90,000 people, which is an extraordinary thing. And uh, on the road with them, it's just it's fun. It's the funniest, most marvelous thing I've ever done. I have to say one of the most marvelous things I've ever done. Um, and to, uh, to be a foil for him and to uh, record with him and be the voice on certain songs and be the, again, to be the actress and, and in, in certain of his videos um, for that reason. And it's a really rare and amazing thing to be able to have a, a, a partnership where you can do that. I don't really know of many people who get to do that. I remember my father saying to me after he watched Harry and I playing music together and saying, you are the luckiest people. I wish your mom and I could have, could have connected like that. I get it, I take it for granted, but I get how rare it is. And because there's no, unusually, and why we've stayed together, I'm sure, is so many of these kind, kind of like, you know, entertainers together relationships rarely work, but because we're each other's greatest fans, but also because there's no competitiveness, I think that's the, the point of it, is that I'm the musician who, who gets to be funny, and he's 
the the comedian satirist actor who gets to be a musician and we have that true understanding and love of of of, of each other for it but it's 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 i know how rare this is i really do now if you can make each other laugh after all these years and make beautiful music together i think that's that's it yeah it kind of is i kind of is uh, i don't i don't think there's much more you know well of course there's this uh, you know there's health there's everything else but i, th I think people who don't laugh together uh, i don't even know how i don't actually know how how you could get through life it's too hard i must say it again it's all too hard and uh you know the laughter is the best medicine i i'm a big believer in that I really do think it and feel it, and um, it does a such good. But uh, th that's, I think, spending enough time apart is a big uh, plus. I think there, there's a lot to be said about really missing your partner and wanting to see them again, and having those times, those quality times together, but then those times where you are, in fact, out from each other's feet. I don't think that's, that's too healthy, personally. I think that's what everybody was struggling with during COVID. It's like, oh my God, you know, I'm with you 24 hours a day and now your breathing is irritating me. You know, I mean, we all, I mean, I love those comments about, uh, it was so funny, but yeah, none of us are used to that. It's extraordinarily different, difficult. But um, yeah, l lucky us for, for finding each other. Very, very fortunate. Yeah, plus you're a jazz performer and he did Jazz Odyssey. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta tell you, Jazz Odyssey is still, to this day, my favorite part. I wait. I mean, I sometimes I just fast forward just to get to it. Just the sound of that. I wrote this. This is Jazz Odyssey. I wrote this. And then the horror that occurs between the Hammond and the bass is one of the most exquisitely awful things that I just, I just live for that. I live With for With the expression it. on his face, too. Oh, yeah. Completely committed, completely believing it. I, it's just a glorious moment, and um, oh hell, yeah, it's sublime. I, I again, I, I, uh, I, I feel nothing but surprise and astonishment uh, <laughs> that I uh, that I got to be with this person whose work I already admired so much, and you know, it was already my bible as as all a Spinal Tap is is to most uh, musicians. Of course, it's like it's the classic. There's no doubt about it. It's the absolute classic. But, you know, it, like I said earlier, it's strange how many things, you know, I, I saw that film, saw that film, saw that film. I end up with the person that's in it. What are the chances? We go to New Orleans, the place that I, with the music where I grew up listening to. It's like all the ducks are in the row. This is very bizarre. Same thing, you know, with when I'm 10 years old and I'm, and I'm going crazy for Songs in the Key of Life. And... I just, will, I, I will never forget. I mean, truly seminal album, seminal. And my sister and I played it until like the blood was coming out the speakers. It was just so important to me. There is a human being who has no boundaries, who has complete musical freedom, who does everything and sees everything and there's nothing getting in his way and is a, truly a musical genius. Now, how come then I get to move to New Orleans, befriend this couple who for two years we just love and adore and they've just moved there from New York or no, from LA actually. And only after two years do I realize when his wife says to me, 
because he's a big fan of my music, big fan. She says, you do know what John does, don't you? And I said, no. John Fishback. Yeah. And she said, well, he recorded songs in the key of life. Okay, I almost choked on my own embarrassment. And another ridiculous connection of the person, you know, the, the album that meant so the sound of it, everything about it. So then I start working with John. He's been my producer, you know, co-producer ever since. And on, the, on, on this latest album, of course. Then, how about this one? One of John's closest friend growing up, upstate New York, was James Taylor. John Fishback introduces James Taylor to a bass player he's just been recording, Leland Sklar. Off you go. Years later, I have the opportunity to meet Leland Sklar because he's doing a show with Harry. That's it. And there it is. And now, I, only in, in hindsight do I realize how close, all, it's like six degrees of, I mean, it really is six degrees of separation. And they're all, they're all there and they're all like vacillating around New Orleans. And I mean, they're all, you know, they're all, they're all there like, it's like little satellites, uh, LA and, and New Orleans, LA and New Orleans. It's a bizarre thing, it really is. It really is. It feels like I, I came in really kind of myself and ready and, and then I heard and then I was a little sponge that took all this in and then it became my life in every possible aspect. It's like that E.M. Forster line in Howard's End, only connect. Yes. You're able to yeah. get all those things from all these different parts of what you care about and love and it all kind yeah. of it comes together. Yes, it does. And, and some you seek out, but the things you seek out rarely work. The stuff you seek out never works. Me bumping into Richard at Capitol Records, that works. You know, me not knowing John was recorded songs like he at life, I didn't pursue that, I didn't know. Because I'm kind of living in my own bubble. That's who I I'm really am a bubble person. I just don't know what's going on most of the time. But, um, and I'm terrible at, you know, I'm the worst person for knowing who anyone is. But it's like, an, if I dare use the word organic way of doing things, it's, it's the most honest way of doing stuff. And, uh, and that feels pretty good. That feels really quite great. Well, this is great. I really appreciate talking to you. And you're coming to uh, Evanston Space in yes. October. And I could walk I to am. that. I could walk there. <gasps> well, a, you know. That's a great place. I, we love it because until COVID, we were doing our Christmas show, Christmas Without Tears at Space and selling out multiple nights. I love the people there. It's a rare place that treats music and musicians the way they should be treated with respect and love. It's a wonderful venue. These guys, every venue they've got is, are incredible. But I'm thrilled to come back with the Gentleman Callers. I am bringing my New Orleans gents. And that's something in, in of itself that I haven't even spoken about, you know, to hear these players, to hear this music, to share this music is really such a, a, a privilege for me and, and such a joy to be a part of. I'm, I, I'm in a state of, uh, of grace and gratitude right now, I must admit, Mark. That's all for episode 104 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Judith Owen for being so open, fierce, funny, and inspiring. Her album, Come On and Get It, is available as a double vinyl LP and in digital form at judithowen.net and at music retailers. Be sure to explore her back catalog, too, from her 1996 debut, Emotions on a Postcard, onward. And then make plans to see her live. 
Owen is touring right now with the Gentleman Callers with shows October 5th at Rudy's Jazz Room in Nashville, October 9th at the Grammy Museum in Los Angeles, October 11th through 14th at the McKittrick Hotel in New York City, and October 24th at Space in Evanston, Illinois. Go to judithowen.net for more information. Oh, and Cabaret of Souls, that 2012 Richard Thompson album that Owen mentions, is available, but only at richardthompson-music.com backslash shop. Owen also sings on Thompson's albums The Old Kit Bag, A Thousand Years of Popular Music, and Sweet Warrior. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, and I would love to apply one of Judith Owen's recent song titles to him, but that would sound wrong. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow Caro Pop on Twitter and Instagram at Caro Popcast. You could follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit carolpop.com where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you'll hear about upcoming events and episodes. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Caro Pop conversation. Thanks. Thanks.